0: But if the United States were to increase immigration and give people work visas and make those people permanent residents, those people are paying into the system. If you bring this mass of new workers into the system, you can pretty easily correct social security, right? Because you have all of these young people who just, they don't, you don't have to wait for them to be born and then wait 20 years. They just come in and they immediately start
1: contributing. Welcome, Matrix members. According to the Social Security Administration in 2018, there were about 56 Americans collecting Social Security benefits. This number is expected to grow about 72 million by 2035. The question is, how does this affect our population? And how will the current condition of our Social Security program affect the generations to come? On today's show, our guests, Spencer Bishans and I, your hosts, Sam Ayiko will look at some ways that the state of our social security program affects our population and how the system is failing our most vulnerable populations. Spencer Bishens has a master's degree from London School of Economics and a law degree from Florida State University. Working for social security administrations for more than 10 years, he drafted and reviewed thousands of disability decisions. After leaving social security admissions, He wanted to help dismissify the complicated disability system. His first book, Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It, explores the obstacles that disability clients face as they try to access benefits across the globe. Follow our show and bookmark our podcast so you don't miss out on our fantastic Matrix Mentors. Good afternoon, Spencer. It's great to have you on the show.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Spencer, can you tell our audience, what is Social Security? It's a great
0: question because in the United States, we're conditioned to hear Social Security and just think that means something I get when I'm old, right? So most of us don't fully understand the scope of the program and what it does and why it's there. So Social Security was originally started during the Great Depression as a way to make sure that you wouldn't need to work literally until the day you die. So the idea was you'd pay in for several decades, 30 or 40 years, and then at age 65, you could stop working and you'd collect retirement benefits for a few years until you die, until the average lifespan. Then later on, a couple things happened. First, people started living longer. And like into their 80s and 90s. And that's kind of a problem if you're just financially speaking for the system, right? You have to figure out how to pay for that. But then Social Security added a disability program. And what that did is it put some people into the system who were paying tax for fewer years. But then maybe, you know, if you become disabled at age 50 or 45, maybe collecting benefits for even more years. So the social security system is a retirement system, but it's also a disability system. And as we'll talk about later, the addition of that disability program um, has somewhat destabilized the system overall. We'll talk about the impact of that later. But uh, I just wanna make sure your listeners understand that if you look at your, your pay stub and you see there's federal income tax, And then there's a social security and a Medicare tax. That social security tax that pays for your retirement benefits, but it pays for more than that. It also pays for a disability insurance program. So that if you become disabled and unable to work, well before you get to your 60s, there's actually no age limit. It could be at any age. If you have medical conditions and you become unable to work, you can file a disability application. And if you meet Social Security's definition of disability, you can collect social security and by the way also get medicare coverage well before you get to your 60s
1: are we accessing the money that we've put into our personal social security accounts when, if and when we do access benefits
0: it would be it, it's a great way to think about social security as like tiny little bank accounts but that is unfortunately not at all how social security works um, Social Security is one giant trust fund account. So the money that you've been paying in is gone. That went to pay beneficiaries. As soon as it went in, it left immediately. Or Congress basically stole it. Stole, I say stole because Social Security's trust fund can't tell them no, but like technically they're borrowing it. So if you wanna know where all that social security money that you're paying into the system, where all of that is, it's nowhere. There's no bank account called social securities trust fund with money in it. That money has either been paid out to other prior beneficiaries or Congress has taken it and used it to pay for a war somewhere. So on paper, there's this thing called the social security trust fund and it's just like a bunch of numbers on paper that say, hey, we have $120 billion. I don't know the exact number um, in theory in our trust fund, but that's only that basically Congress owes that money to Social Security. And so if you're wondering, well, what happens at retirement? Where's my Social Security money? Well, when you're 67 and collecting Social Security, some 35 year old will be paying into the system and that's the money you'll be getting at that time.
1: Thank you so much for clearing that up for us. And my next question is, let's say someone is 1099 because I have a lot of my uh, matrix members are entrepreneurs. When When we pay our taxes, do they, is the social security that we didn't pay taken like considered into our taxes? Do we pay that?
0: Yeah, so anyone who's self-employed, at the end of the year, of course, you file a tax. No one's been withholding income tax. You have to make quarterly payments, or you're supposed to make quarterly payments on your income tax, right? Mm -hmm. But then that's calculated, ultimately, at the end of the year. And the other thing that you also pay at the end of the year on your tax return is... Uh, called the self-employment tax. I don't know exactly what line that's on because that can change from year to year. But um, somewhere on your 1040 tax return, you'll see a self-employment tax and the self-employment tax is actually both your social security tax rolled into one and for employ your employer actually pays half of your Social Security and Medicare tax? Well, and I talk about this in part one of the book. So that's a great question because while there are a lot of employees in the United States, of course, there are also a lot of people who are self-employed. So anyone who is an employee knows that their employer takes money out of their paycheck for the income tax, but also Social Security and Medicare tax. So what's actually happening there is the employee pays half of the Social Security and Medicare tax, and the employer pays the other half. But if you're self-employed, you don't have an employer. So guess what happens? And I talk about this in chapter one of the book. You get to pay both halves. So you end up paying the entire Social Security tax and the entire Medicare tax instead of just half of it. And so instead of, I think it's instead of 7.65%, you end up paying the entire 15.3%. And the way you do that is your income tax, you maybe pay throughout the year if you're paying quarterly estimates. But we don't do that with Social Security and Medicare taxes for people who are self-employed. Instead. At the end of the year on the tax return, there's a line called self-employment tax. And if you use something like TurboTax or H&R Block software, they usually just calculate that for you. And so whatever you're supposed to pay the Social Security and Medicare tax on, it usually just fills in that line for you. Well, that self-employment tax, Social Security and Medicare treat it exactly the same as if you're an employee. And so they give you social security, gives you credits based on the social security tax that you paid, which is part of that self-employment tax. So yes, you're definitely still paying it. And in fact, you're paying what some people call the self-employment penalty, which isn't an actual penalty. It just refers to the fact that you have to pay both sides of that tax because your employer isn't paying the other side of it. Quick counter argument to that though, is most people think like well your employer's paying half of that tax but instead of giving you that money as salary so there's a little bit of a debate as to whether or not self-employed people are actually really financially penalized but yes everyone is paying that tax you're required to by law and so even people who are receiving 1099 or otherwise have their own business are still paying the social security tax and earning those credits
1: it, it's a little comforting, even though it is the penalty tax, to know that even if we're self-employed, that we can still access benefits if necessary.
0: Assuming you are paying tax, I mean, a lot of the people, a lot of people in the United States work under the table, which I don't recommend, of course. Not only is it illegal, you're lying to the government, uh, you're breaking several laws, but also you're not collecting those social security credits because you're not paying the tax. And I saw. A lot of times when I work for Social Security, I would see a claim where the person didn't qualify for the Social Security disability program and turns out they were working under the table and not paying the tax. And then when they became disabled and unable to work and really needed it, that was of course the time when they wished they'd had it. So it's like any other insurance company in that regard, in the sense that you have to pay the insurance premiums before you need the insurance. But the time that you need the insurance, that's, it's too late at that point to decide you need to go back and pay for it. That's not how insurance works.
1: Matrix members, I hope this this part in- inspires you to be proactive in what can happen down the line. We always have to be humble and know that our our youth, for those who are around my age, and really catches up to us in the future. and Those who are at this stage of reaching Social Security, I bet you can validate what Spencer is saying. These benefits really do come in handy when necessary, especially we saw this during our pandemic. Those who weren't paying taxes weren't going to get a stimulus package. And I love that we get to bring this on the table and bring awareness to these topics and how important it is not to neglect. How does Social Security fail our most vulnerable populations?
0: That's a a great question. And one that I was about to say something with what you just said before that question. And so this is a great time because I think it will answer it. You were just talking about preparation, right? And how when people become older, meaning get your retirement age, those benefits are helpful. Well, the thing is, retirement is at least something you can plan for, right? We know Social for people our age, Social Security retirement age is 67, based on when we were born. So you can look down the line and know, okay, that's this many years in the future. And you can at least try and save through a 401k or an IRA and think about how to save so you might not need Social Security retirement benefits. But that's much harder for Americans to do when it comes to becoming disabled because most households i think it's 8 out of 10 american households are living paycheck to paycheck most people have no savings they're completely unprepared for something that most people when it happens say i never saw that coming right even young people you can sometimes it's work related you work in a warehouse or in construction sometimes it's a car accident sometimes you get diagnosed with a serious illness like Chadwick Bozeman passed away at 34 I think from colon cancer so you just never know what's gonna happen and when and that's why the disability benefits are so important because they are helping a population that is the most vulnerable population in the United States because they get to a point where they can't work and are completely unprepared because they never saw it coming. And the thing with the United States is our healthcare system, it's not a single payer system, of course. It's based on your employment. Something like I think 80% of Americans still get their insurance from work. So if you need disability benefits because you can't work, well, if you can't work, that means you probably have lost your health insurance, which means maybe you can't get treatment, at least not affordably, which means you can't get evidence which makes it really hard, as we come full circle, to prove your disability claim. And so this is why I think the disabled population in America is the most vulnerable population, because they get hit with everything at once, an illness or injury, medical expenses, medical care, rehab, uh, like physical rehab, and then at the same time they're not working so they can't pay the rent, can't keep the lights on, can't buy food, can't support their kids. And then when they turn to the government for help, the government says, "You don't have evidence to prove your disability." And when you say, "I don't have evidence because I don't can't get treatment because I don't have health insurance because I'm not working." The government says, "Well, you don't have evidence." And there's just it seems to be like It seems to me that segment of American society has been largely forgotten about and ignored. And I feel like the disabled community is the last community within the United States where discrimination is seen as acceptable. I don't know why, but people who are not disabled, who do not identify as being part of the disabled community, just kind of have this attitude like, well, I have to work, so, so should they, or I could work, so, so can you, or you don't look disabled to me. So and and I think that's really unfortunate. Um, because what it means is it it continues promoting the system that is really failing the the people who need these benefits the most.
1: Wow. thank you so much for being someone that supports the people that need this attention by being a pioneer in this conversation. And yeah.
0: And I just want to say, like, you, you, that's why I wrote the book, right? I wrote, so when I left Social Security after 11 years, and I wrote almost 2,000 disabilities decisions. And so I saw medical records that were really well developed. And I saw medical records of people who didn't have insurance and couldn't get treatment. And so even though they had really serious medical conditions, there was nothing they could do about it, right? And so I I am bringing a very firsthand look at this. And if I sound very opinionated, it's because I have very strong opinions based on a very large sample size of Social Security cases. And that's ultimately why I wrote my book, Social Security Disability Revealed, why it's so hard to access benefits and what you can do about it. Because I learned over time all of the reasons the system is stacked against you as a claimant all the ways they're trying to keep you out of the system, and I explain how you can navigate that. Mm -hmm. Now, why would Social Security want to keep people out of the system? This is something I mentioned at the beginning when I talked about how adding this disability program sort of financially destabilized the system, right? Because you have people paying in less and maybe taking out benefits for more time. Social Security understands that that's happening. So on the one hand, when they force everyone to pay in and they tell everyone, don't worry, if something happens to you, we'll be there with a disability program. We're there if you need us. Social Security says that, but they know they can't possibly pay every disability claim. There's just the money isn't there. We've already talked about how there is no money. And the current workers of America can't fund the current retirees and a growing number of disability applicants, right? Over 1 million people apply for disability every year. Social Security can't possibly pay all of those cases. So they have to start denying people and they have to, as the more people deny and as the resources become more slim, they have to figure out ways to deny more and more claims. Even if those claims have really good evidence and medical opinion saying people are disabled. So the way Social Security handles this is they're not really the neutral arbiters they say they are. They're, they, they have applications and paperwork and requirements and they'll make you do things multiple times. They, they make the process so strict and onerous, they get a lot of people to just give up.
1: Yeah,
0: and quit and get discouraged and feel like they, they can't possibly, they're never going to get these benefits. And, um, and that helps reduce the number of people in the system, and then they don't have to deny as many claims. So it's one strategy of many that Social Security uses to reduce the number of people applying for benefits I like to tell people they operate kind of like a private insurance company. They're not. There's no profit involved. But the disability program has to operate like a private insurance company where it takes money in but pays as, as little out as possible. And they have to do that so that there's money there to fund the retiree program for those people who have paid in for 40 years and then need those benefits.
1: I feel like anybody who's going through a disability to the point where they can't work is going to be suffering with their mental health, trying to cope with their circumstances. And feeling overwhelmed is like very hard to self-regulate people on an average basis. For someone going through yeah. a disability, it seems nearly impossible for them to, unless they have help, like how can they it's, do this? It, I, I think what you're saying is it's kind of, silly that we
0: say to people, prove your impairments. And for many people, one of those impairments is anxiety or depression or PTSD. We say, prove that you can't work. And then we cause this unbelievable amount of stress by putting people through the system where we're setting them up to fail. And then sometimes also in that same process, telling them, you haven't proven your anxiety and depression, but like while we're causing your more anxiety and depression, right? Um, he, I, this is a physical impairment, but I think this sums it up, like this illustrates this point really well. I was talking to someone recently and he has a physical disability and when he's outside of his house, he requires use of a wheelchair. Well, social security will s- send almost everyone to see a doctor they make you go see this doctor, and they pay that doctor, and I talk about this in the book, of course, uh, and that doctor provides a medical opinion. Well, Social Security's paying that doctor. So that doctor's client is really, it's not you, it's Social Security. They're seeing you for Social Security. And what Social Security wants is opinions, and a, a medical opinion saying that you can work, that you're not disabled. That's another way that helps them deny claims at the initial level. Over 70% of people get denied initially, and this is one of the reasons, because whatever your medical situation, Social Security will send you to see a doctor who will inevitably tell them that you can work. Well, so they sent this person who requires use of a wheelchair to see a doctor, and this doctor's office was on the second floor of a building that did not have an elevator. How is he supposed to go see that person, right? But. I know from experience that if he doesn't, Social Security will not apologize. They'll say, "Oh, you failed to attend our consultative exam, so you're not cooperating, so we're dismissing your claim." So you can see like it that sounds ridiculous, but that's what Social Security does. They try and figure out ways that they can get anyone who they can possibly get out of the system. They want to get you out of the system so that the people who do make it through a denial and a second denial and all the applications and the paperwork and who actually get to a hearing, at the point where they get to a hearing, uh, I tweeted about this recently, those judges are maybe they're paying about 50% of the cases. And so judges will say, well, yeah, our pay rate's about 50%, but that's 50% of all of the people who made it that far who and it doesn't take into account people who couldn't apply, couldn't figure out how to apply, don't speak English, didn't have help, filled out their forms incorrectly, couldn't go see the consultative examiner because they use a wheelchair and they couldn't get up to the second floor, were deemed to be uncooperative for other reasons, or chose not to appeal one of those first two denials, uh, or missed the 60-day deadline on appeal. There's so many reasons why people are kind of booted out of the system early on and and the system is designed that way unfortunately it's designed to make you get frustrated to make you depressed and anxious to make you feel like there's just nothing i can do this is never going to work to make you give up and walk away and again social security they're not doing that for a profit but they're doing that because They can't, the social security system cannot financially cope with paying the number of disability claims that I personally think are likely legitimate. We have a country that treats its workforce like they're disposable, Mm -hmm. right? Overwork people. And if 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 you can't get 50 hours, then maybe you can't even get 40 and you're getting 30 and now you have to go take a second job. That's another 20. Right. And so that's why you're overworked. We're underpaying people, overworking people. We don't give them health insurance. We don't have mandatory days off like they do in Europe. You know, in Europe, I think there's not a country that has less than 20 or 25 mandatory days off for every worker in the country. And we have zero. So that combination, it just causes people's bodies and sometimes their mind when it's mental health impairments to break down over time. You know, you were talking about how you have a lot of young listeners. Well, when your young listeners are working 50 hours a week for 10, 15 years, you're getting older, your immune system isn't as good, you're working harder. Then you you come home and you got little kids... And, you know, it just, it compounds and it compounds, and at some point um, you might have an illness or you're not getting enough sleep or you're in a car accident or you're not paying attention at work, you know, and something falls on you. And then you need disability benefits. And so a million people are filing claims every year. A small fraction of those people are actually being approved. But all of those people have a lot of medical evidence and have medical opinions and have really good evidence to show that they are disabled and unable to work. And yet, unfortunately, Social Security, they know how many people they can take care of. And so they prioritize those claims and and they say, you know, you're more disabled than you are, even if both of those people just from an objective standpoint seem like they're
1: it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Wow. So I, it shocks me like you can provide all this evidence and still get rejected. It makes me curious, what are the requirements to get accepted?
0: So the, the legal definition for Social Security of being disabled is the inability, medical impairments, one or a combination of impairments, physical or mental health, for any reason, by the way. It could be something you were born with or something that happened on the job. It doesn't matter. Just some kind of medical impairment or combination of impairments that causes you to be unable to do any full-time work in the national economy for a full 12 months. So you have to have medical impairments they have to then cause work-related limitations that cause you to be unable to do any work. Not the work you want to do, not the work you were trained to do, not the work you were educated for, not the work you like to do, any work. So think about what job you like would really love to never do, like maybe a call center, right? It's a low physical exertion. It's a sit-down job. Maybe you sit in a cubicle and you're talking on your phone. You don't have to lift, stand, walk. So if you have a more high physical exertion job and you get like, say, a back injury, well, if you could go work in a call center, you're not disabled. You can do other work that exists in the national economy, even if it sounds miserable. So it's a very strict standard. And that's the first problem, is that the standard is designed so that a lot of people who think they're disabled aren't you know if you've done a job for 30 years and you're, you know 55 and you can't possibly fathom doing any other work well if social security finds that you can go do other work in the national economy you're not disabled even if you feel like you are but then you have All of these people with all of this great evidence showing that they can't do other work with the national economy because they can't do a full eight-hour workday, or maybe they have mental health restrictions, like they can't be supervised, they can't be around other people, they can't leave their home, they can't concentrate, they can't focus. And You might get social security saying, well, we think you can do a job involving very low amounts of concentration or not needing to interact with other people. So like a mail sorter where you stand in a mail room in the basement of a business and you just put envelopes in boxes, you can do that so you're not disabled. Another reason that people tend to just feel disheartened, disillusioned and give up. They get these decisions from social security that sound totally disconnected from their reality. And they think like, I just feel like no one's listening to me. What's the point in even appealing that decision? And again, as we've talked about, this is something social security wants you to do. They want you to give up and walk away. And that's ultimately why I wrote the book. I wanted to explain to people all the different ways along what what Social Security is and how you apply for benefits and how they make decisions, but then all the points along the way where Social Security is going to try and get you to give up and try and just put barriers in your way and how you can deal with that so that you give yourself the best possible chance of being approved.
1: So in the book, our listeners can find... What requirements are necessary to get accepted by the program?
0: So in part two of the book, I go through what Social Security calls the sequential evaluation process. And that's just a fancy term for the steps they go through to to decide if you're disabled. And I talk about at step three, there are these uh, medical requirements for all different kinds of impairments. And I explain how to find those medical requirements and what those are. But then, if you don't meet those strict medical requirements, you can still be found disabled. And that's steps four and five of this five-step process. And I explain how that process works and how the Social Security judge will go, you know, here, here, even within each of the steps, here are the things that they'll look at. And uh, ultimately, you have to prove that you have functional limitations that prevent you from doing other full-time work. And so I explain how the judge looks at all the different types of physical and mental functioning that humans do on a daily basis and what types of functioning are required for full-time work. And and then, you know, if I'm going to try and become disabled, if I'm going to try and get these benefits, I know then what I have to prove. And then I can start thinking about when I'm going to see my doctors chiropractors, mental health specialists, physical therapists, et cetera, I can start thinking about what kind of evidence Social Security is going to want from me, and I can start thinking about how to get that evidence for my medical sources. Because your disability claim doesn't start when you apply. It starts two years before that when you're seeing your medical sources and getting those medical records together, right? Because that's what Social Security is going to look at. And if you haven't thought about that, when you're actually sitting in your doctor's office talking to someone, talking to your medical professionals, then you're probably not going to have the right information in those records two years later when you tell Social Security, here, look at my medical records and find me disabled. So you got to know the process throughout the process, but it's particularly important when you're creating that medical record because that's what's going to stay with you throughout the legal process.
1: If, if someone gets rejected, what are their chances for approval later on?
0: So as I said earlier, most people actually get rejected twice right up front. Uh, Social security denies over 70% of the initial applications and then like over 95% at the next stage, which is called reconsideration. So the vast majority of people will not be approved at those first two steps and will have to appeal to the hearing level. If you get that far, and we've talked about all the reasons you might not get that far, but if you can get to a hearing with a judge, your chances of being approved at that point are closer to 50%. But that all depends on like who the judge is and how good your evidence is. There are some judges that pay a very high percentage of cases, like 80%, and there are some judges that pay like 20% of cases. So it's not just like a coin flip. It, it all depends on your impairments, how old you are, your work history, what kind of medical record you have, uh, how extensive it is, whether there are gaps, whether you have a representative helping you, and ultimately, whether you yourself know the system. And that's what I tried to do in the book is provide people with the information that they need to give themselves a better chance of success at that point. Even if you get a low-paying judge at the hearing level, let's say your judge pays 20% of their cases, right? Well, Let's say they have five hearings in a day. Your job as the claimant is to figure out how to be the most informed and most prepared claimant that day so that your case is the one out of 5 that that judge is going to approve that day and there are strategies you can use but you have to know the system you have to know where the problematic points are if you just go in and you just say to a judge i'm disabled i'm in pain i can't work please please help me and you know you get to the point of begging essentially That's not a good strategy, right? It's not a good strategy for um, if you have a cavity, like you wouldn't just like hope that it goes away. You've got to find a professional and get it filled. If your car breaks down, don't sit there on the side of the road and just kind of hope it fixes itself. You have to go to a a qualified mechanic, make sure they know what they're doing. Well, in this case, you have to make sure you know what you're doing and you have to hire a really good, qualified representative and I explain in the book who the representatives are and how to do that. And then ultimately you have to be your own advocate and work with your attorney representative to present your case in the best possible way so that you can take an active role in being that one out of five cases that that judge approves that day.
1: In your professional opinion and with everything that you've seen, How does the current state of our social security program impact our future?
0: With regard to retirement, I don't think anyone should try and rely on social security. Not because it won't be there, because it just doesn't pay very much. And as I talked about earlier, retirement is something that you can plan for. And I know that's a pretty privileged comment because a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck. They can't save for like things they need, like a car trying to save for for retirement is probably not even in their wheelhouse right now. But it is something that you can look at long-term and say, okay, today I'm 30. I need to be prepared to be 60 in 30 years. What could I do? Even if I can't start today, I need to start soon. And you can think about that. Um, And everyone really should, because again, if you are just relying on social security, once you get, To 67, you're going to find out that it's not nearly enough. Uh, As far as whether the program will be there at all, I know a lot of people think it won't be because like the trustee report says something like, if nothing else changes, this program runs out of money in 2035, 2037. But the thing is, the trustee report has had like a 15-year outlook on it for a very long time. And that's just because they're not taking into account more workers coming into the system. For example, if the United States, I know immigration has been a pretty rough topic the last several years, but if the United States were to increase immigration and give people work visas and make those people permanent residents, those people are paying into the system. If you bring this mass of new workers into the system, you can pretty easily correct Social Security, right? Because you have all of these young people who just, they do not you don't have to wait for them to be born and then wait 20 years. They just come in and they immediately start contributing. The other thing is Congress often tinkers with the retirement age or the cap on the tax. It's not long ago you were paying ta- that Social Security tax on an income of like 120,000. Now it's up to, I think, 147,000. So as Congress raises that cap, people are paying more and more social security tax. They're delaying when they get benefits. As we talked about throughout this whole interview, the disability program can do their part by reducing the number of cases they're approving, which sounds terrible, right? But that's the way the social security disability program sees themselves as helping because they're not looking at individual cases. The people who manage that program are taking this macro view and saying, you're a statistic at that point. We got a million people and how many can we approve at this level? How many can we approve at this level? We're approving too many cases. The trust funds is in trouble. Let's bring our approval rates down. And, and that's ultimately why you got to know the system because, as you are a statistic, and you can't change that. But when you get in front of an individual judge, you're not. And the judges and the social security management are constantly thinking about statistics. And a lot of the statistics are not in your favor, right? Because they're looking at how can we deny more cases overall? Well, even in that context, they're still going to be approving some cases. And so that ultimately is what I'm trying to do with this book. I'm trying to educate people so that you can understand what's going on, know what you need to do in order to be in the small minority of cases that are being approved.
1: Thank you so much, Spencer, for helping out with your book. and you're doing you're doing us such a great service for educating us because these resources are not readily available and they're not in our education curriculum. It's ironic that it's the system that we provide for. Yeah, there's not a lot of education around it unless we seek it on our own. Why is that? Why is there no education? They don't need to educate you to
0: pay in. They just make it the law and force you to pay into the system. And then if they educate you, then you learn about how to get benefits out and they don't want that. Mm -hmm. So they just make it the law that the money comes into the system and then they deliberately provide, you no education because they don't want you taking money out before retirement age. So, and that's why when we hear politicians even talk about social security in air quotes, they're referring to retirement. There is a disability system, but it's something that people don't want to talk about because there are already too many people applying and nobody wants, I don't want to say nobody, I want you to apply. If you're disabled and unable to work, I want you to apply. But the politicians and the people who manage the Social Security Disability Program, they don't want more people applying. They've got too many people in in the queue already.
1: So Matrix members, you hear that? They They don't want you to win, but Spencer and I do. So please check out Spencer's website, get on that book, educate yourselves, and you might be able to help somebody along the line. You may have a friend of yours venting to you about a situation about a family member or their own situation. And with you having this knowledge in your hands, you can be a pioneer in spreading this information and helping those who need the service receive it.
0: Yeah. And for my parting words, I just want to add on to that and say we often hear politicians talk about entitlements and sometimes in a positive way and sometimes in a negative way. But the thing is, this is an entitlement in the sense that you've paid into the program. If you're paying the social security tax, whether through an employer or if you're self-employed, you're paying the tax and you're earning credits. And that means if you become disabled and unable to work, you're entitled to those benefits if you can't work and you have medical evidence to prove that. So don't let anyone particularly the Social Security Administration, stand in your way. Educate yourself. Know how they're going to try and prevent you from getting those benefits. And know that if you are persistent and you understand what's going on, they they can't prevent you from getting those benefits. You will ultimately get to where you want to go and give yourself the best possible chance of being approved if you don't let anyone let you give up Don't let anyone let you quit. If you get denied, you can appeal. There's always a next step in the process. Make sure that just just remember that you've paid in and this is a government benefit that you have the right to access.
1: Thank you so much. And before we get to our rapid fire, I would like to ask if you offer one-on-one counseling in this topic.
0: Uh, I do not. Um, In the book, I do recommend that everyone have a social security representative. And I think the best person to go talk to is someone in your local area who knows the judges in your hearing office and knows how your hearing office works and local rules and procedures. And so I think that if, if anyone is thinking about filing a disability claim, I think that's the best thing they can do is go find a social security representative in your area. They're highly specialized. Many of them only do social security disability law, so they know the system really well, and they're not going to charge you for a consultation. Social security representatives only get paid if you win, and only a very fixed amount. And I explain all that in the book, but for a lot of people, especially young people, this might be the first time you've ever hired or even spoken to a lawyer in your entire life, and it can seem intimidating. Go sit down and talk to someone. They have a way of talking about this with you that makes it less intimidating because they want you to apply so that you can get your benefits so they can get their fee. So they're happy to sit down and talk to you. They're happy to give you a free consultation and explain the process. But like you might only get 30 or 45 minutes with that person, right? So if you're starting from scratch, from like what is disability? you're not going to get very far in that 30 or 45 minutes. Whereas if you've read the book and then you go sit down and talk with them, you're going to get a much more comprehensive discussion and you're going to benefit a lot more from that time.
1: Thank you. And Spencer, I really find this conversation to be so fruitful and it really cleared up a lot of things. I had no idea about anything about Social Security And with this conversation it's inspiring me to pick up your book and to get out of the woods. And it's nice to have a resource to not feel lost. Are you ready for our rapid fire final question? Let's do it. What should I have asked you that I didn't know enough to ask?
0: Well, I mean, I think we covered it, but I think that the, oh, I got one, here's one. If I've been paid benefits, am I good to go? Because most people think like, oh, if I get approved, that's the end of the road and I don't have to worry about anything anymore. And I have a party and I got my social security disability and I'm fine. But of course, we all know now that social security is doing everything they can to keep you from getting benefits. So even if they get to a point where a judge feels like you've got a really solid case and they're going to approve you, social security is not going to just let you go. Every couple years, they're going to send you paperwork, effectively making you reapply and rejustify why you should get those benefits. Even if nothing's changed, you're going to get paperwork saying, fill this out, tell us how you're functioning, send us all your medical records, we're going to go have you see another one of these doctors who we're paying to tell us that you're not disabled. All of that happens again, and then you might get denied and have to go back and see a judge again. So, that's something that most people just don't know about or don't think about but that's definitely a thing and i explain how that works in the book and it's really important that you know how that works if you are getting benefits because if social security then finds out you weren't supposed to be getting benefits because they find you're no longer disabled they'll hit you with an overpayment and that means you owe the government money And that is one of the worst things that could possibly happen to an American citizen is you finding out that you owe the United States government money because they have unlimited power. So you don't want to find yourself in that situation.
1: Oh, thank you. That's a great warning. That's definitely not a body that we want to make an enemy or have any debts to. If you found our talk fascinating and you know someone who can benefit benefit from Spencer's wisdom, send them this episode. Navigating through our social security system can be scary and overwhelming. Visit Bishenspublishing.com to learn how you can be supported going through this process. Spencer's book will be available on his website, and I will also add Spencer's social media links in the description below. Thank you for your time, Spencer, and it's an honor to have you on the show.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. I think we covered a lot today. It's been great.